Mark chapter 12, verses 35 to 37 this morning. It's a very short text. We're continuing on studying the life of Jesus. Jesus has previously been answering questions of the scribes. And as we come to Mark chapter 12, verses 35 to 37, Jesus is going to now ask a question of the scribes themselves. Would you read God's word with me? Mark chapter 12, verses 35 to 37. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. This morning, the message that we will be looking at, the title is The Mystery of the Identity of the Christ. As we begin, I want to invite you to study with me the world's oldest riddle. Anybody know the world's oldest riddle? It comes from ancient Sumer, modern-day Iraq, and here is the riddle. There is a house. One enters it blind and comes out seen. What is it? Anybody know the riddle or have an answer? There is a house. One enters it blind and comes out seen. What is it? I know you're going to wait for me to give you the answer so nobody has to raise, raise a hand. I, I, I figured there might be one brave soul. Very, Carrie, that's very close. A school. A school, there's a house that one enters, blind and comes out seeing what is it, a school. Let me move us one step closer because in ancient times, a riddle was actually one way that people passed time together. It was very common to tell riddles to one another. And we actually have, if if you go and Google this yourself, if you go and, and Google and search for ancient riddles... Probably number one will be this riddle from Sumer. Number two will be one from the Bible. It's the, the, some of the two most famous riddles we know. Does anybody know what riddle I might be speaking about from Scripture? Thank you, Tim. From Samson. Samson is uh, having his kind of wedding feast. And to the guests, he tells a riddle. And he says, here's the bet. I'll tell you a riddle, and if you can answer it, I will give you 30 outfits or or 30 30 pairs of, of fine linen. If you don't answer it, this is your wedding gift to me. I need 30 outfits of, of fine linen to dress well. And here's his riddle. Out of the eater... Something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. 
Now, no one would have been able to answer this riddle except for Samson, because with Samson, something very unique had happened. Samson had killed a lion. And when he was walking past that lion several weeks later, he looks and he sees that inside the carcass, possibly the ribs of that lion that was laying there, that there were bees who had made a nest. And Samson looks at this and he's amazed. And he comes up with this riddle, out of the eater, this is the lion, the one who is the predator, something to eat, out of the strong, something sweet. Now we know with the riddle, they couldn't answer the riddle, so they go to Samson's bride and they convinced her to tell them and they get the answer right. This morning, we want to take a look at what we might think is a very difficult question to answer. It's a riddle in a sense, because it, when Jesus asked this question that we have in front of us today, there was no answer given by the crowd, and one of the things we'll see is that actually Jesus does not answer this himself. Proverbs 25.2 says, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is a matter that is the glory of kings. The Proverbs tell us that in life, not everything is easily answered right on the surface, low-hanging fruit. That one of the glories of life, and, and, and Proverbs tells us this is the glory of kings, is that we would pursue answers to the difficult questions of life and pursue them with biblical wisdom. And so this morning, we are going to pursue our text this morning because Jesus poses a question to the crowds. Remember, if we have some context, in the previous weeks leading up, as we've been studying Mark, it's the scribes and others who have been asking Jesus some very hard questions. Questions that they thought he would get wrong. Questions about taxes. Questions about the great commandment. And that was an actual honest question. But today, Jesus is going to ask the crowds a question, and it's, he asks a question about the scribes' interpretation of Scripture. And what Jesus is doing through this riddle, this question, is that he's pointing us to the identity of the Christ, or what we often call the Messiah. But we have to do some homework ourselves. And the aim of our time this morning is to study God's word today and answer this question that Jesus asks so many years ago. Because we believe that as we answer this question, not only we know more about the Christ, this Messiah, but we will know more about salvation itself. So this morning we're going to take a look at this passage, Mark chapter 12, verses 35 to 37, through three lenses. The first lens we're going to take a look at is prophecy. The second lens we'll take a look at is mystery. And the third lens that we will take a look at is theology, or I might specifically say New Testament theology. It is what does the New Testament have to say, the inspired writings. So let's begin. Let's take a look at prophecy. Let me remind you again, it says, Jesus taught in the temple, this is verse 35, and he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Now before we move on, let's just 
stop and explain two very specific things. When Jesus uses the words the Christ, I want to make sure that everybody knows what we're talking about. When we talk about the Christ, the Christ is this this long-awaited, this this promised, anointed one who would come and fulfill prophecies that God had been given, fulfill promises that God had given his people. And so when we say the Christ, or another word you might know as Messiah, we are meaning the same thing. And the reason, you notice there's a definite particle there. I don't just say Christ. It is the Christ. At this point in time, the question was, who will this be? Who is it? Who will be the Christ? Who will be the promised one? As we approach the scriptures this morning, and if, as we are to insert ourselves into the text, this question is not answered yet in full. It's being answered through Jesus in his teaching. But for Jesus' crowd and those who are listening, it is not immediately clear who is the Christ. Now, Jesus says the Christ is the son of David. Let's speak about this just a little bit further. When David was king, God gave David a very specific promise. It's what we often refer to now as the Davidic covenant. I won't uh, turn to those pages, but if you're taking notes or you simply want to know, God gives David the promise, an unconditional promise, that God would provide David an heir who would one day be king and whose kingdom would never end. There was one day off in the future where King David would see that one of his heirs would be made king. But not just king of Israel. King of the world. This is called the Davidic covenant. It's a promise of David. It's in 1 Chronicles 7, or excuse me, 17 verses 11 through 14. It's also, it can be found in 2 Chronicles 6, 16. And so we're introduced to the fact that that this Christ is the son of David. Think back with me, actually. Do you remember back in Mark chapter 10, specifically verses 46 and 47? Do you remember blind Bartimaeus? He's the man that Jesus is is walking by. Actually, he has already walked by. He's outside uh, on the road. Jesus is leaving uh, Jericho. And this man begins to call out over and over and over again, so much so that he annoyed the crowds. Do you remember what he called out? It was something very specific. Thank you, Miriam. He is crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This Bartimaeus, this blind man, is crying out, and he's equating something that the Scriptures have not yet fully confirmed. He's looking at Jesus, and he's calling him the what? The son of David. Blind Bartimaeus is recognizing, I think this is the Christ. I think this is the one who's coming to fulfill. And so, you need to understand this promise of David, you need the promise of David, you need to understand that the Christ is the future one, the anointed one, the Messiah that everybody's been waiting on. And once we've laid those two things, we can move on and we can talk about. And so, 
Jesus is going to ask about a question of the scribes. He says, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? And this is where we get into prophecy. In verse 36, it says, David himself, if you have your scriptures, look very clearly. It says, in the Holy Spirit declared. David himself, in the Holy Spirit declared. What is Jesus doing in this text? Jesus is calling the crowds to examine this teaching. He's inviting them to look well at a very specific psalm of David that they knew. And he says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared. So Jesus is saying this psalm of David is not just a psalm, it's a prophetic psalm. This psalm is revealing something, or the Holy Spirit is revealing something about the Christ, the Son of David. And Jesus wants to make clear that the Holy Spirit was working through David to reveal something important about the Christ. I want to stop because this opportunity can't be missed. And I want to just take a step out of this passage and teach an important truth. When Jesus says, speaking by the Holy Spirit, this was a a typical, what we call, rabbinical formula for saying this is inspired or divine utterance. It's what we would call the inspiration of the Holy Scriptures. The reason I want to stop and just point this out is because this is absolutely foundational for, one, your own study of God's Word, but if if, if you want to understand when we talk about river of life and our DNA, how we handle, how we interpret, how we teach, how we preach, what happens up front here, what happens in our Bible studies, what happens in our discipleship, we believe God's word or the word we have in front of us is the inspired, authoritative word of God. 2 Peter 1 verses 20 through 21 says this, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What is Jesus saying about David in the Psalms that he had written? David said, or or Jesus says, that speaking by the Holy Spirit. It's such a small little phrase, but man would we overstep a critical truth that will give you confidence in one, the scriptures, two, in how you build your life, three, in what we do and preach here. Because we don't preach man's wisdom and we don't preach what we think will draw a crowd. And we don't preach themes that we think will be interesting to people. And in fact, when we come and we prepare God's word, I don't think, what do our guests most want to hear? We start with the Word of God and we work out and think, what does God want us to know? And then how do we faithfully proclaim that Word? So when you come to River of Life, and I just want to take a a side note, but it's too important to overstep, is that we believe that God's inspiration and His authority go hand in hand. And everything that we do, in fact, if you want to go, when, when we know that we are a group that is very transient and you will go to other churches, 
And when you go, if you want to find a church that is going to help you grow, find a church that preaches and teaches the gospel of Jesus Christ and God's word as the very inerrant word of God. That is the test of faithfulness. It's not how good the music is. Although we have wonderful music, and I praise God because they can go together. But and it's not simply how many programs they have. And it's not what it, all the ways they can serve me. You find a church that will faithfully preach the word of God and you will find a place where you can grow. You will find a church where God will bless the teaching and preaching of his word. And if you find a church that is centered on the worshipers, how will they feel? How emotionally can we get them involved? You will find a church that is built on the wisdom of men and it will not last. It will fade. It will not equip the saints for the work of the gospel. It will not change lives. The gospel of Jesus Christ has to be preached and and, and taught in a way that we faithfully uphold the scriptures. So first and foremost, Jesus sees David's words as prophecy and he held them to be inspired, the inspired word of God. Not just nice poems that David wrote, but Jesus says this is actually prophecy for today. The inspired word of God. So this brings us to the mystery. The mystery is this. Jesus says, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Look at verse 37. He says, David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Notice it says, the great throng or the huge crowds heard him gladly. They loved listening to Jesus. He was so profound. He asked questions that nobody else had asked Mark adds this little tag, and it says, they heard him gladly. By the way, this is what should happen in the preaching and teaching of God's word. When a church faithfully preaches and teaches God's word, what we hope, uh, or what we should see, is that God's word will attract people who are interested in hearing from God. That's what it will do. It's like the great magnet. The scriptures and the gospel attract those whose heart God is working in to reveal himself. Now, you might be trying to piece this together and for modern ears, maybe you're not even sure. What is the riddle? What is even the contradiction? That's where we got to study right here. Because we've seen that Jesus says, this is the word of prophecy. And what is the word of prophecy? Here it is. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If you have your Bible or if you have your phone, turn to Psalm 110 because this is this very specific passage that Jesus is quoting. Let's go to Psalm 110. If you turn to Psalm 110, the first verse in the psalm is the verse that we have here in Mark. It's the the verse that Jesus quotes. It says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So when we come to Psalm 10, what is the mystery? Or when we come to Mark looking at Psalm 10. The mystery is this. In what sense is this Christ, is this Messiah, the son of David... When so clearly, what David says is, the Lord says to my Lord. And this is a contradiction for the hearers. Because how 
is the son of David, or this future king, who would one day be the Messiah, at the same time, David's Lord. Now to help us understand that, you need to think about the fact that in ancient cultures, and and still in, in some cultures today, when you talk about the father or the son or those who would descend. Who is, who is greater? I, I think of Asian cultures where there's so much respect given to those who are elderly or older or the father or in a certain position. You need to have a lens that is able to look at this passage from, those, uh, from a context of the original hearers. Somebody who would be Jewish. And to hear that the Messiah, the Christ, would be both the son of David, meaning he's a descendant. And by the way, there's, there's really two people primarily that the Jews consider higher than anybody else. Abraham, the one who originally received the promises, and King David. The, there's this hierarchy of those who'd received the promises of God. And so how can this Christ be Not only David's son, so we know David would be here in the hierarchy, and the son would be here. But this passage flips that interpretation, and it says, David calls this future son of David his very Lord. Maybe your mind is not exploding. Jesus' original audience, to them, this was an unsolvable riddle. Because he can't be both. David, if it's the son, then the son is inferior. If David calls him Lord, then the son is superior. But they don't have any model for this. How is this even possible? To maybe even go on a deeper level, if you look at Psalm 110, and you look at, there's one major difference between when Jesus quotes it in Mark 12. Do you see the very beginning it says the Lord says to my Lord, look at those two words, Lord. Does your Bible have a difference in how those two words are written? What is it? The first is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. When the Bible uses that term, does anybody know what that always refers to and who that is? That is Yahweh. That is God's holy name. In fact, it's the name that the Jews, uh, they, they, they created a name so they wouldn't use God's holy name. This is God, the Father. And it says, the Lord, meaning God, says to my Lord. The second word is capital L, small, or lowercase, O-R-D. That word we have translated as Adonai, which is also Lord. And so we have a puzzling conversation. Yahweh is speaking to somebody else, and he calls them Lord? And this person is David's son? How can humans be called by this name of divinity? It's a puzzle that actually Jesus does not answer, and they can't answer. So the mystery here as we read this text is, The Christ, the Messiah, is David's son. But yet in Psalm 110, we have this interesting passage. This specific person who would one day be the heir, the Christ, is called David's Lord. 
Everybody understand the problem a little more fully? Maybe more fully than we did before? So let's move on because the answer to this mystery is not in the text today. It's why I began with a riddle. If I were to put it in a simple phrase, here is the mystery. How can the Christ be both David's Lord and David's son? It's an impossible question based upon the facts that we have in front of us. So let's end by looking at theology. When we take a look at the New Testament, we're not bereft of answers. In fact, the New Testament, we've already read one verse from Isaiah this morning when we looked at our catechism that begins to unpack this. That we're told this baby who would be born was wonderful, counselor, the mighty God. There was one who would be born, a son of David, who would be a, not only a counselor, the wonderful counselor, he would be mighty God. Turn with me to Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 3, because I don't know of a better verse. There's many that we could choose, but for time's sake, we're just going to take a look at one verse this morning, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. So let's solve this question. How can the Christ be both David's Lord and David's son? Here's what Hebrews tells us. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty from on high. What is the prophecy about this son of David? He says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. How does Hebrews end? It says that the very Son of God would be sent, and after making propitiations for sin, or basically after making or offering his life for sins, what does he do? He sits down at the right hand of God, the most exalted position, and now we have the answer to the riddle. The one who would be the Messiah in the Christ was this promised descendant of David. But this promised descendant of David wouldn't be just anyone. He would be the one who laid down his life for the sins of the world and thereby receiving a name that is above every other name and receiving more glory than anyone else could receive because he offers a sacrifice that is perfect for sin and thereby God makes him to sit at his right hand. Who is the Christ? The Christ is the very Son of God. He is deity. And he is the Son of David. He is human. We often refer to this as the incarnation. God in the flesh. The Christ, the Messiah, was the God-man, which is heresy to say unless it was true. To call God a man is heresy. To call man God is heresy. But to call this prophesied one who would be a descendant of David is 
theology. Because it is the foundation of why we sit here today. It's the foundation of why we celebrated the fact that Ryan shared his testimony. None of us have anything to praise God for unless there was the God-man who made it possible. Let me unpack that for one second. I couldn't have picked a more amazing catechism question than the one we had today. Because it points us to, it says, who is the Redeemer? The Redeemer has to be one who is truly human and truly God. There isn't, this isn't simply nice to be. God, God out of his love for us, didn't, didn't just think, you know what? I love them so much, I want to become man so that they might know me better. There was actually something much greater at stake. There is a necessity, there is a must. God had to become man. And let me show you why. In fact, Mika read this morning already, Jesus was born under the law to redeem those under the law. Man cannot save himself, and here is the reason why. Because if we try to relate to God out of our own goodness and our own good works, none of us can achieve godly perfection. So when we talk about a redeemer, when we talk about someone who would bring us back to God, that redeemer has to be somebody who can take sinful man and bring them back together with holy God, which is impossible. Unless God himself becomes a man, is born under the law, he perfectly keeps the law, meaning he had perfect obedience, and as a result of perfectly keeping the law, he's able to offer a perfect sacrifice for sins. The only kind of sin, or the only kind of sacrifice that would be acceptable in front of a holy God. There is no reconciliation, there is no redemption, unless we have this doctrine of the God-man. God become flesh, living under the law, perfectly fulfilling the law, offering his life as the perfect sacrifice for sin, and then now being able to reconcile us to a holy God. The only thing left is to think about our response this morning. And our response, I want to take a look at 1 John chapter 1, verses 1-4. to How is it that you can respond to this amazing riddle that we saw this morning? By the way, what we saw this morning and what the scriptures do, the beauty of the scriptures, the depth of the scriptures, this is why you could spend your entire life studying God's word. We never get to the end of the many facets of the beauty of what he has done. The sermon today was not simply understanding a, 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 what seemed to be an impossible question that Jesus asked. The answer actually answers the impossible question the whole world has been asking. Which is, what is the solution to our sin? What is the solution to the problem of the world? And the Bible doesn't say it's war and it's murder and it's anything other than sin. And the problem to our sin is answered in this text today. It is the God-man. The, the riddle that is in front of us to unpacking why we exist 
What is the solution? Where does it all end? What does it point to? It's found in this text. Let me end with 1 John 1, verses 1 to 4. John is speaking and he says this, That which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes. John is speaking very specifically of Jesus. John was a disciple of Jesus. He had seen him with his own eyes. He says, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. We have seen it. And we testify to it and proclaim to you eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And then he says in verse 3, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things so that your joy may be complete. How do you apply this passage? How do you respond? God has revealed himself, the God-man, so that we would know eternal life. And more specifically, that we would have fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. There is not a greater promise. There is not a greater treasure. There is no greater hope in the world that you sitting here could have fellowship with the Father and with the Son. And in fact, John ends by saying, we write these things so that your joy might be complete. I don't know your situation today. I don't know where you're coming from. I don't know the week that you have. I don't know that the life that you're living. But here is what I know. Your joy will be made complete by coming to know the God, man, Jesus Christ, and knowing the Father by believing in this truth that God himself has come as a man, died and offered his life so that you might be reconciled to him. And only when you know this will you know joy. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your word. God, we believe it is your word that works. As your word is preached, as your word is worshipped, as we faithfully preach, teach, sing, and pray your word. Father, you work. Work now to convince our hearts that it was not only nice, but it was necessary that you would become man, that you would live a perfect life, that you would offer your life as a perfect sacrifice for sin, and that in doing so, you have reconciled us back to yourself. May every single person here know how to respond to you, to believe in you, to trust in you, so that they might know joy. We pray this in the name of our Lord and our Savior, the very Son of God, the very Son of Man. Amen.